Good morning, church family. Great to see you here today. And if you are a guest, welcome to you again this week. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, make your way to the book of James. Uh, maybe you got one of those scripture journals on the way in. You can grab that and use that this morning. Really encourage you, if you didn't grab one of those, to pick one up on your way out. This is meant to, to resource you and prepare you uh, for Sunday mornings, that you'd be kind of be reading along with us in the book of James, maybe making some notes on the side. And so it'll help you prepare your hearts as we gather to worship and praise God on Sunday morning in this room, but it'll also prepare you for a discussion that you'll have in small group. Uh, it's always easier to, to discuss something when you've thought about it beforehand, and so these, these journals will be uh, a great resource for you both for Sunday mornings and in small groups. And so I hope you will take advantage of those and utilize those. Now, the, the very book of James is practical. I mean, the whole series that we're talking about is practical worship. My hope has been uh, from the beginning of the year when we said our goal this year is to talk about worship. My, my hope, my goal was that we would broaden our view of worship, that it would be much more than a song. Yes, singing is worship. It'd be much more than a gathering together, though when we gather together, that is a time of worship to the Lord, but that in every avenue of our life, we would see it as worship. And so we really started the year talking about some kind of the theological foundation for our worship. Now we turn to the, the book of James that's going to help us very practically worship the Lord. Now, some of the topics that the book of James is going to cover are these. I just wrote down a few of them this last week. He's going to talk about worshiping in trials, through temptations, worshiping and making decisions, worshiping how we spend money, worshiping in how we listen and how we speak. It's going to talk to us about our anger and favoritism, warning us against that. It's going to talk to us about what it looks like uh, for our arguments and the root of our arguments and how we can help work on that. It's going to actually tell us how to worship through our planning, how do we plan in a godly way. It's going to talk to us about worship in, in our suffering and our sickness. It's going to talk about praying in this book. It's going to talk about confession. It's even going to talk about sharing your faith. Does it get any more practical than these categories, right? And this is what the book of James is going to give us, the very practical aspect of worship. Now, many, many scholars believe that James is just a commentary on Jesus' teaching. You can actually read the Sermon on the Mount, and, and James is kind of taking what Jesus was teaching, and he's putting on like the, the lowest shelf, like taking the cookies from the top shelf, putting it on the lowest shelf so that we can understand some of Jesus' teaching in a practical way. So if you have ever read some of Jesus' teaching and felt confused by that, or like, what is Jesus teaching, or what is Jesus saying, then the book of James is for you. It's to help us understand how we live out our faith, because our faith works. Now, James today is going to lead us to, to worship specifically during our trials and trouble. So we're going to read the first four verses. You follow along with me as I read these verses for us, beginning in verse 1. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Bow with me this morning. Lord, we thank you 
that your word has practical truth for us. Yes, it gives us the theological truth that we need, but Father, you have given us the everyday practical truth that we need also. And so, Lord, as we read your word, as we unpack this text, I pray that we would do what the book of James tells us, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Lord, guard us from deceiving ourselves, from just knowing more of the word and not living it out. Lord, speak to us now because we need to hear from you. Now let me give you just a moment in silence to pray and ask that God would challenge you, convict you, and change you through his word this morning. Would you be so bold as to pray that to the Lord right now? Would you also pray for me as we start this new series and we start this book that I would honor and worship the Lord well through teaching, but also serve you as you hear the word of God. Would you pray for me now? Lord Jesus, even as we start the book of James, we continue to pray the same thing week after week, that you would Help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might to the glory of your name and for our good. Amen. All right, before we unpack this whole idea of the the trials and worshiping God through trials, let me just set the context for you because that's where the the book starts is with the context in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God. Now, there's many James mentioned in the Bible, but this is not one of the apostles, James. It's not one of the disciples, James. It's not one of the other people that are mentioned in the Bible. This is actually the brother or the half-brother of Jesus, that James. See, I said a half-brother because Mary conceived with child through the Holy Spirit and and had Jesus. And so Jesus would have been James' older brother, but Joseph would have been James' dad and Mary his mother. So this is a guy who knew the life of Jesus. I mean, shared meals with Jesus. I mean, shared, even, even shared bathroom with Jesus, right? <laughs> to an extent. Like, he knew Jesus really well. And it's interesting here because James starts, and he doesn't lay out this huge, like, this is who I am. I'm the half-brother of Jesus, so, like, listen up to what I have to say. No, he starts very humbly, and he says, I'm James, the servant of God. Now, we're not going to unpack all of James's story right now, because we're actually going to hit that on Easter Sunday. Would, would you be intentional to invite people on Easter Sunday, because this is a time where people are a little more interested towards spiritual things. It's a time of year where they're willing to come to church, and so invite them, because what we're going to do is talk about the life of James on Easter Sunday, how he moved from a skeptic who rejected Christ, who didn't believe in Christ, who mocked Jesus, to the point where he writes a letter and says he's a servant of God. So we're going to talk about his kind of life change on Easter Sunday. That's only a month from now, so be intentional to pray and look to invite people on Sunday. So he's a servant. He writes this letter. He actually becomes one of the the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He becomes one of the main leaders, the main pastor there in Jerusalem. And we know through history, the the end of his life, he's met with all these different trials and troubles 
And he's given the chance to deny Jesus, to reject Jesus and keep his life. And he says, no, I love Jesus more than life itself. And so though James led in the early church, he ultimately went through his trials and tribulations and gave his life to worship Christ. So that's James. So when you hear a man say, count it all joy to suffer for Christ, like he knew it. He lived it. He has credibility to write the words that we see here. So he's, James is the one that's writing the letter. Who is he writing the letter to? Well, you see in verse 1 as well, it says to the 12 tribes. Now, this is an Old Testament reference. If you're not familiar with the, the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes in Israel. And they were known as kind of God's people. That God had made a covenant with them. He led them through the wilderness. He he rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. And so in the whole Old Testament, many times it talks about the 12 tribes, speaking of God's people. Now, James is writing to Jewish believers that would be a part of that, those 12 tribes. But even much broader, he's using that as a term to talk about believers. All of God's people, he's writing to God's people. Now, as he writes to these Christians in the early church, they are going through hard times as well. It wasn't just James that went through difficulty. The, the early church does. And we see that in the next word in verse 1. The 12 tribes in dispersion. They had been dispersed. See, what happened, you can go read it in Acts chapter 8, is there was this man named Stephen who preaches the gospel. And some people believe and are saved, and other people are like, no, 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 no. We don't want anything to do with that. And so they actually take him outside of the city, and they stone Stephen. That's what they do. And so this persecution arises in Jerusalem. And so God's people, because of the persecution that's happening, many of them were dispersed or scattered across the Roman Empire and even beyond the Roman Empire. So these are people that have gone through hardship. They've gone through difficulty. And as he writes this, he's reminding them, you're scattered. There's believers in all these different cities all over the, the nation and yet, they, they're the minority right now. They're living in a culture that they're minority. <laughs> that there's a culture that thinks different than them, that acts different than them, that spends money differently, that has different attitudes, that has different values. And there they are, sitting in the midst of this culture that's opposite of them. And James is writing this letter to them. I mean, does this context sound familiar to us? In some ways, it sounds very familiar to today's times. Now, we as followers of Jesus sometimes feel like we're kind of scattered in our city, or we're kind of the minority in our workplace or in our families. Even though we live in the, the Bible Belt, right, like we might in North Carolina be the, the, the biggest part of the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, right, even we sometimes feel like we're swimming upstream culturally, and so what does it look like for us as we live in this kind of world to worship in very practical ways? Well, James starts in this passage with worshiping the Lord through our troubles or our trials. This is extremely important because on the whole, American culture has done a pretty poor job preparing us for trials. Most of us assume that life is supposed to be good, 
that, that nothing is supposed to go wrong. And when something does go wrong, it just it breaks us down. But that was not the assumption, assumption for most people in human history. In previous generations, people expected life to be short and painful and difficult. Previous generations had no problem believing in an afterlife because this life was so difficult. This life, this life was so hard, but our culture, our Western culture, with all of its conveniences, all of its prosperity and technology, it, it, it lies to us to, to tell us that life should be easy. It should be smooth, filled with happiness and zen and fulfillment. And so we're shocked when life goes wrong, which it always does. Despite all of our technology, our best practices, life is still filled with heartache and disappointment and broken relationships. And that happens to both the rich and the poor, the young and the old. It doesn't matter. It happens to all of us. Some of us are there right now. So the bottom line as we think about the context is we probably need this instruction from James maybe even more than the original audience did. God wants us to learn how to endure suffering well. That's part of my job as a pastor to help us as a church know how to suffer well in this broken world because it is a broken world. And that's what we find in verse 2. God teaching us how to suffer well. And we find the first point is this, that pain leads to praise. Pain that leads to praise, that's what you see in verse 2. God wants us to rightly understand suffering and trials that we go through in this world. So God is giving us the right understanding to this broken world so that we aren't broken by the world. And so he tells us several things about trouble. He tells us several things about pain and suffering and trials. Verse 2, this is an important word. It's a small word. But after he gives this, this challenge, count it all joy, which that's one extremely strong way to start a book, right? Like James is like, hey, it's James writing a letter to you. Now count it all joy when you go through trials, that's how he starts. Now, the, the word that I, that I mentioned that I want you to kind of highlight or, or underline, count it all joy, brothers, when. When you meet trials. This is not an if. This is a when you meet trials. And this means that everything uh, with, with, with humanity, we'll, we will all experience brokenness. It's not a matter of if you can live a life without brokenness. Oh, it's, it's, you're going to, that, that pain and suffering, it is inevitable. That's what that word when means. That troubles are inevitable. You can scan through history and you will find it to be true. That trouble meets every single one of us. They're just going to happen. And this is nothing new to the scriptures. And I love this because, remember, when we read the scriptures, we're not reading a fairy tale. This is reality. And it describes the world in which we know, in which we have experienced that brokenness, suffering, and pain. It's a part. We will experience it. Jesus talked about it in John chapter 16. He told his disciples, 
in this world, you will have trouble. It is going to happen. That's one of the promises that Jesus gives us that we never memorize. But it's just truth. We're going to have pain-filled times. We also see in 1 Peter, when we were going through that not too long ago, 1 Peter chapter 4, he challenges us and tells us, do not be surprised at fiery trials that are coming. Rather, expect them. Peter says, this is going to happen. You're going to suffer. You're going to have pain. Expect it. Now, James takes it to the next level. Jesus says, yes, you're going to deal with trouble. Peter writes and says, you should expect it. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by it. But then James is like, yeah, all that's true, but I want you to have joy through it. That as pain arrives in your life, it should lead you to praise. Count it all joy. That's the next level. It's not just like know that you're going through suffering, but have joy in the midst of it. Let your pain be turned to praise. Man, James, do you realize what you're saying? Because, because trouble and pain, like it is expansive. And James is like, yeah. Yeah, I know it's expansive. He tells us in verse 2 as well, as you meet trials of various kinds. You meet trials of various kinds. Trials, plural. You're not going to have one trial in your life and be like, well, yeah, I suffered that one point in my life. No, your life is going to be filled with trials. And he talks about trials of various kinds. Various kinds. You see, when he talks about trials here and being met with trials, at that time, there were many people that were met with persecution. There were many people that met trials of poverty. There were many people that met trials of isolation or struggling. There were many different types of trials. It was expansive. And the word that he uses here for meet trials is an expansive term. It's only used two other times in Scripture. The other time that this word that he uses here for, for meet trials, being plural, speaks of a man who was on, on a way to, to another city. And as he was going to another city, he was surrounded by robbers who beat him and stole money from him. Same word, same root word that's told in that parable that James uses, being surrounded by those troubles. The only other time it's used in Scripture is to talk about a, a boat that was sailing into waters and two currents came together and it was surrounded the boat and literally tore the boat apart until they were shipwrecked. And James is like, yeah, yeah, I'm telling you to count your joy. And yes, I know that this is going to be trials, plural, and then you're going to have Many different various trials, that it is expansive. And this word for various trials there is a, it's a unique word. It's an interesting word. It's literally translated multicolored trials. So different shades of aggravation are going to hit your life. Different hues of frustration are going to be found through the various trials that you may experience. Whether it is some of the ones that the people experience this time of persecution or poverty or even maybe the health pains of life. These are real people going through real life pains. And they're surrounded by this cornucopia of pain. James knows it. He's in it with them. And he wants us to praise God through it. 
to praise God through the pain. You might be thinking this morning, well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for all the encouragement. <laughs> thanks for the encouragement this morning. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering is expansive. Great. I already knew that. I didn't need the Bible to tell me that. Maybe we didn't need to hear that, but we needed to be reminded of it. Maybe it's not the first time we've experienced that, but we need to be reminded of it because the Bible is not connect, disconnected from your life. The Bible speaks to us in our life to worship Him. Now, the Bible tells us that we should take a radical leap forward from what the world does with suffering and pain. It tells us we should take a radical leap forward and count it all joy. Now let that truth settle in. God's word is telling us it is possible. It is possible to have joy in trials. You might say, okay, well, how do I do that? Well, look carefully at the word of God. This word for, for counts right here where he says, count it all joy. This is a a word meant to consider. Maybe your Bible is translated that way. To consider it, which means to think on it. To consider your troubles. Don't just feel your troubles. Don't just feel the weight of the world on your shoulders and on your heart, but consider it. Think about it. Do you, do you see that? It doesn't just say, think happy thoughts or think peaceful thoughts just let them kind of pass through your minds as you go through trials. No, he says stop and consider your trials. Now, I don't know about you. I will just speak for me. Joy is not typically the feeling that I have when I go through trials. It's just not. I typically might feel anger, especially if something feels unjust. Like, what? I didn't deserve this. Or why is that person able to get away with this? Or God, where are you? Like there might be a sense of anger that comes up in your soul. Or maybe you feel despair. Things are never going to change. This pain is never going to go away. This, this relationship will probably never heal. Maybe this weekend you're, you're thinking, you know, when is my big break going to come? When am I going to find my soulmate, or when is this fertility treatment going to even work? I don't know what you've been struggling in, but how are you responding? Is it in anger, or is it in despair? God's Word is, is giving us a command. It's an, it's an invitation to count it all joy. This is so important. Joy is not a feeling that is just going to naturally overcome you in trials. Many of us just want kind of to pray one prayer and that this feeling of joy and this kind of God-giddiness is going to just overflow us again. We're just going to be happy and walk around. But that's not what it's telling us. It's telling us to pause and consider. Pause and wade into the water of your suffering with the Lord in mind. That you would consider Him. You see, joy is a byproduct of believing in the promises of God in the midst of your great pain. And this will be one of the most difficult things you ever do as a Christian. Ever do. But we have to think about our suffering and think on the Lord. We might 
feel the same way about our situation, but the promises of God as we meditate in them in our mind will elevate us to a sense of joy above our feelings. This will be difficult. This is a part of worshiping God with all of our minds. Worshiping God for all of, with all of our minds. Now, I do think that it is a fair question to ask why should I count it all joy? Why should my pain turn into praise? Why? I mean, who does that? Who does that? Who praises in the midst of pain? There's two types of people, right? People that are disconnected from reality, who just love pain. And these are the same people that are just confused about everything. They think they're Garfield the cat as well, right? Crazy people are the kind of people that rejoice in suffering and pain. Of like, let's take a beating, like, give me another one, right? Like, crazy people who are disconnected from reality are people who take joy in pain. That's the first type of person. The second type of person is a person who is more connected to reality. The one who has a deeper understanding of reality. There's a kind of person who can rejoice in pain because they know something. Not someone who's out of touch with reality, but someone who's in touch with a deeper reality. They understand that there is potential locked up within their pain. Which leads us to the second point. That there's pain with a purpose. Pain with a purpose. You find that verses 3 and 4. There's a purpose for the pain in our lives. And James is going to tell us that there's two purposes to our pain. First, pain produces perseverance. God uses pain with a purpose to develop steadfastness is the word my Bible has in verse 3. Do you not know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness? Your Bible might actually translate that perseverance. And the Greek word which the book of James was written in, the word, if you break it down, literally means to abide under. That as we go through pain and suffering, God doesn't put us through the crisis in order to bring crisis into our hearts and our souls. No, he does that in order to strengthen us that we could abide under the pain and the suffering and the struggle. The crisis has a cause to it. The pain has a purpose to strengthen us that we would abide under pressure. It's meant to create, create in us endurance to move forward. Endurance for our souls and our hearts and our minds as we navigate the broken world that we live in. So God uses pain as an instrument to sow into our life steadfastness and perseverance. Again, some of you hear this and think, wow, that's really great. God will put me through hardship to make me a stronger person so that I can endure more pain and more hardship. So you think, like, that logically sounds broken, right? God wants to make you stronger, so he'll put you through difficult times. So take a beating. Why? So that you can take a greater beating. <laughs> what? Like, well, hallelujah. Right, James? Let's get the band back up here and let's sing some worship songs, right? Is that what God's word is ultimately telling us? Like, if, if the end of this, ultimately, if the whole purpose to pain was just so that we could take more pain and be able to endure more hardship then it would leave us in a broken place. 
It would lead us not to joy, but to despair. But that's why James says there's another reason for our pain. There's another purpose. He tells us that in verse 4, that you may be complete, that you may be perfect, lacking nothing. See, pain is not an end to itself. Not even the endurance that we gain as we walk through pain and suffering is an end into itself. No, James is like, you suffer in this world for a period of time that you may be complete. God will allow us to go through difficult circumstances and give us perseverance, but that's not the whole reason. He wants to use that pain to perfect you. He wants to use that pain to to grow you and to refine you. You get that? There only through perseverance in our pain can we be perfect and complete. I mean, we as a church, we have winter classes where you can come in and study different theological topics and Bible studies. We have summer classes where we do it. We have small groups that you'll sign up for and take a part in as we walk through the book of James. And we will talk about those things and how we can grow in the Lord as we read God's Word. And that's great, and we should. But if we had a, another online registration for suffering, and this is where you want to grow in your faith, you want to grow in your maturity in the Lord, then sign up for suffering. I think none of us would sign up for that. We're like, no, 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 no. Put me for the Bible study class. Let's leave suffering to the side. But God's Word is telling us that there's some things that we just cannot learn that we won't mature and we won't grow unless we've gone through suffering and pain. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it like this. Three things make a great Christian. Prayer, Bible study, and suffering. Suffering. And I'll never forget this, and I've shared this with you before, but when I was up in Raleigh, we had a small group that really wasn't that small. We had about 30 people that were in it. And one night we were sitting there and we were talking about growing in the Lord. And I just asked the question, what's the kind of season of life that you grew most in the Lord? That you mature the most, that you think back and you're like, that was a season in my life where I grew more than any other season. And everybody kind of goes around and talks about different times in their life. Some decades ago, some years ago, some months ago. And they're just all talking about, this is the time where I grew the most. And every single One of them, but one, was around suffering. That in the suffering and their pain, that's when they grew the most in the Lord. So the question worth asking for our own hearts and our lives to consider is, do you want to know God more than you want to avoid pain? Do you desire to know God more than you want to avoid pain? And the reason why I ask that question is because this is super important. This is super important to the, to the words of James right here. Because he says, when we have trials, when we have temptations, we are tempted to retreat from God. Not to lean into God, but to retreat from Him. And James is telling us, no, let steadfastness have its full effect. Did you see that in verse 4? Let, once again, a small word with huge impact. Let steadfastness have its full effect. The implications of that for you and for me is that we could choose not to let it happen. Let it happen to you. Nope, I don't want to. So we retreat or we run 
from God. And James is saying, no. In order to worship God well through the midst of your trials, then run to him. Run to him. Your trials will either make you bitter or will make you better. Let steadfastness complete its work in you. You see, difficulties have the tendency to reveal our deficiencies. There are some things that we're just incomplete in right now that God and His grace and His kindness is walking with us through our suffering and our pain to, to teach us certain things. Teach us certain things. One of the things we learn is humility. Paul, one of the, uh, the apostles, great guy, somebody who was a, was a strong leader, who really assertive, a brilliant man, wrote majority of the New Testament. Paul writes in Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that because of the surpassing revelations that he's received, the wisdom he has, that he might not be too prideful, might not be too swollen or puffed up, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And Paul kept praying, God, remove this pain and suffering from my life. And God's response is, no, no, my strength is sufficient. My strength is only made perfect in your weakness. Paul, as he wrote those words, yes, he would rather get out of that pain and suffering. And you know what? There is a promise that one day we will get out of the pain and suffering, right? That Christ is going to come again and wipe away all this brokenness and pain and suffering in this world. This pain and suffering is not the finish line. But Paul says, until then, this, this weakness that I have continues to humble my heart before the Lord. It teaches me humility. Some of you know that suffering and pain has taught you compassion like you've never had before. The reason why you've You've gone through some of your suffering and pain. You now recognize because you've been able to love others and encourage others and help others through their suffering and pain. I mean, some of the, the best friends you will ever make in life is because they've walked through the same trials that you've walked through. And now they have a compassion for you. The compassion with you. It's one of the things that grows within our soul. Compassion does. As we walk through suffering, this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit takes. What is meant for evil, the pain and brokenness in this world, God takes and turns for good in our lives and the lives of others. It will also grow faith in our life. When suffering comes, which is always coming, there's going to be a temptation for us to bolt or to turn away from God. And God uses those times to say, are you going to turn? Are you going to run? Is that what you're going to do? And we have a choice to choose faith, to trust in the promises of God, that he will keep them to the very end. It grows our faith knowing and seeing that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Will we rest in the truth that he will walk with us through the valleys of the shadow of death? And it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. What can shadows do to us? Nothing. They might scare us, but they can't harm us. And he walks with us through the valleys of the shadow of death. Oh, that we would worship him. And praising and worshiping him in the midst of our pain is not faking it. It's faith. 
that we believe God is who he always said he is. Whether we're on a mountaintop or deep in a valley. Oh, that we would rest in his promises that he is going to make all things new in this broken world. Oh, that our hearts would find rest and peace and that our faith would grow knowing and longing for that day to come. Oh, we look to Jesus. Well, we look to Jesus. He is the one who modeled this for us. He is the one that modeled exactly what James said. I believe that's one of the reasons why James is writing it, because he looked at the life of Jesus, and he saw a man who went through hardships and trial, and he endured for the glory of God and what, what lied ahead of him. And if you turn, it's just one page in my Bible. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll also see the verse on the screen, you're going to see this challenge again for us to fix our eyes on Christ who endured pain like this in a form of worship to the Father. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the what? The joy. Jesus counted it all joy that was set before him. He endured, endured the cross, despising shame, and was seated at the right hand of God. That word endured right there in Hebrews chapter 12 is the exact same word translated steadfast in the book of James. Endurance. James looks at Jesus' life and says, look, this guy endured for us. Now you endure. You endure. Christ did this. Christ was steadfast in his trial of the cross and the shame that was yelled at him. Jesus counted that suffering all joy because he knew it displayed the steadfast love of God. The reason Jesus stood and took hell itself and the wrath of God was because he loved us. He poured out, he took the full wrath of God, it was all poured out on Jesus. And Jesus didn't let go. He stood fast. He endured. He persevered. And his perseverance is now the joy, the jewel of our life. Although we would look to Jesus and worship him and praise him for the one who endured that we might be saved. And church, very tangibly, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to do what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, and we're going to look to Christ as we take the Lord's Supper. So go ahead and grab that cup, and we're going to Take a little bit of time now to look deeply on the perseverance of Christ in our place and allow that to be where we place our hope. Not ultimately in our perseverance, but in His for us. And so we look to this as a reminder today of what Christ has done for us. Now, the Scripture tells us very clearly as we come to the Lord's Supper that we don't just consider Christ, but we also consider ourselves. We consider the, the sin within our hearts and our lives, and we confess that to him. And let his endurance be a reminder that we're not going to scare him off. Christ endured all that hell had to offer, and he stood there. So your sins are not going to scare Jesus away. If they were, he would have left the cross, but he didn't. He stood on the cross to take your sin. And so if you are a Christian now, then you come to him and confess your sins, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of what he's done for us. And if you aren't a Christian, then God's word says, don't take this yet. 
use this as, a, as an illustration for you to see and know what Christ has done so you would understand the gospel. This bread is a picture of his body that was given for you on the cross so that you could be forgiven. That his blood was shed on the cross that your sins could be washed as white as snow. And so if you aren't a Christian, you can use this time to pray and ask that God would save you. And that he would forgive you of your sins. And God is faithful and just. He will forgive you if you confess those sins. And so as we take this time, I'm going to start us in our confessions to the Lord. And you either confess Christ as Lord or you confess the sins to him knowing he's forgiven you. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper as a celebration of his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Lord, it is by your strength that we are sustained. By your mercy that we are spared. Forgive us, Lord, that until now we have neglected the, the duty that you have assigned us in our suffering and trials. We haven't counted it all joy. We haven't praised you through it. Well, we confessed and said we have complained. We have retreated from your command. And so, Lord, help us today. Make us to remember that every day is a gift from you. And, Lord, it's all to be lived according to your command. Therefore, we repent of our negligence so that we might obtain your mercy. Pray and confess your sins to Christ now in the silence.